I'm Alka Kurian, host of the new podcast South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender and human rights. In this first season of South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to new South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Sonali Bose, an Indian film, make, film director, writer, and film producer. Sonali made her debut feature film, Amo, in 2005, for which she won the National Film Award for Best Feature Film in English. Bose is also a winner of the Bridgestone Narrative Award and a Sundance Mahindra Global Film Award. She's one of the most influential feminist diasporic filmmakers of today. Along with Amu, she has already created a legacy of the most powerful cinematic oeuvre, which includes Margarita with a Straw in 2012, Chittagong 2015, and The Sky is Pink, her latest film released on October 11th, 2019, a film that she is currently promoting. It's such a pleasure talking to you, Shanari. Lovely talking to you, Alka. Yeah. I would like to start from the very beginning of your filmmaking career. You came to study political science in the United States, but turned towards filmmaking. Talk about that. Actually, it's because of that that I became a filmmaker. You see, I wanted to be a teacher and pursue academics. And had I stayed on in India, I feel that's what would have happened because Columbia PhD political science wasn't what I imagined it to be. It was too conservative, too putting me in a box, India in a box. The attitude to India was about the third world development, you know? So it was too sort of conservative for me compared to my own history department. And I quit after my master's and I worked for a year at the National Lawyers Guild. I thought I I wanted to pursue social justice that moves me tremendously. So I was doing that and part-time I just did a little thing at a Manhattan cable TV where I had to just edit little one-minute news clips and that really excited me. Now I had been an actor my entire life but never ever dreamt or thought about directing. But when I was just doing this internship, I really got into it and I decided to apply to film school, which I did. And I got a scholarship to the UCLA Film School. And even at that point, I was still debating, you know, just being an activist full-time and teaching again and not getting to, but then I said, I have a scholarship. Let me give it a shot. Let me try one semester. And then if I don't like it, I'll go back to India. So I joined the UCLA film school within the first six weeks, we make our first short film, which is a two minute film. Interestingly, that too was about mothers and daughters, which has sort of been a theme in my work. So that was a two minute film. And as once I wrote the script and directed it and edited it, I realized in my bones that this was my calling to be a director. That's excellent. Um, You also mentioned that while you were in Colombia, you were inspired by third cinema films from Africa, Latin America, Asia, etc. And what fascinated you in these films? They were revolutionary. They were revolutionary, not just in their content, but also in their form. You know, I I just absolutely loved it. This is one, it's, it's a course that I was doing and I was very excited, but even at that time, it was as a watcher. It's not that as I was watching those that I thought, oh, I'll direct, but I I just loved uh, watching those films. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And um, let's move to your very first feature film, Amu, that you made in 2005. And this film, as we know, a runaway successful film that received, you know, critical acclaim. It is, it's a film based on the 1984 anti-Sikh violence. And there are very few writers and filmmakers who have actually dared to represent this horrific history. Um, and in the film itself, you're an excellent storyteller, you know, holding the audience in, subsense, in suspense. But before we talk about the film, I'm curious to know what inspired you to make this film. So I was in my first year of college, 18 years old, 1984, when the genocide happened. And uh, my history department organized for us to go work in the relief camps. And, and then after that, I also even joined some other Delhi organization because it was the citizens of Delhi that really responded to this massive humanitarian crisis, not the government. It's ordinary people who just gave from their hearts whatever they could and set up the shelters. So working on those camps was an eye-opener for two reasons. Number one, before going in there, because the atmosphere in the, in the television and Doordarshan, there was no cable TV. So there's only one channel, the government channel. The atmosphere was so poisoned that you were led to believe that firstly, these were riots out of communalism, that there was some anti-Sikh feeling from Hindus. And so then going into the camps, one just didn't know that, okay, how will the um, families, the survivors respond to one, you know, because there was such poisoning happening. I was just like, God, are they going to feel like somehow, you know, we stand for the Hindu community. Like I had no idea going in there, you know, and going in there just was an eye opener politically because every single person, every survivor would tell a story and say that they are alive because their Hindu neighbors saved them. And the deaths happened because in front of their eyes, local politicians and gundas came and, and carried out the killing. There was absolutely no you know, for a second, even anybody saying a story that, yes, yes, we were suddenly turned on by our Hindu neighbors. You know, that was huge because it was exactly antithetical and opposite to what one was reading or hearing. That was number one. Number two, it was a huge love and response one got from the survivors and what one realized one can give. Like, because you, you don't know, you don't know what to do in such a huge situation when people have lost everything, their families, their homes, and they're devastated, but actually all you have to do is put out your arms and hold them and they just cry in your arms and you just have to be present. You only, ha you only have to be present. And it's an enormous learning as an 18 year old to, to give that presence to hearing people's stories, you know, widows telling their stories. They're just unforgettable for me. So cut forward, you know, over 10 years pass, almost 10 years pass actually when I make this decision to make Amu. And nobody at that time, like you mentioned, very few. But at that time, there was not even one film, not even one piece of media about this. And even though it's such an insurmountably difficult thing to do, I was like, that story was burning inside me, the real stories of what I knew. And also the fact that people didn't realize that it was a genocide, that it was so organized. And that's what drove me that, you know, this has to be my first film. Mm-hmm. I remember watching it at um, the Tasveer Film Festival and being completely blown away by the power of the narrative. And of course, we had, as you remember, the most interesting and, um, you know, a very um, heated conversation that we had in the Q&A. I remember that. I'll never forget that. And in fact, that's when I came to know you, you know, when you came to Seattle. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit also about the story in the way, you know, you are an excellent, excellent storyteller, you know, the ways in which you, you know, give little bits of information, you hold the audience in suspense. But what is fascinating in Amo is the ways in which you intersect and intermingle Kaju, you know, the central character, Kaju's curiosity about the terrible reality of, of her past with that of the audience as Kaju is you know, as the reality is unfurling in Kaju's eyes, the reality is unfurling in the eyes of the, of the audience as well. In particular, I'm talking about the audience of the 2005. And it is through Kaju, you very, you know, cleverly highlight this collective amnesia of the country. Like Kaju doesn't know, and similarly, so she sort of stands for this collective amnesia of the country that is steeped in this ideology of forgetting the 1984 attacks of, you know, this, it's steeped in the ideology of omissions and silence and, and also the lack of accountability. And in particular, the, the ideology of the erasure of the truth. And I think one of the very poignant or some of the most poignant scenes um, in the film is, uh, relates to when Kaju is sort of going through her emotional journey, Kabir is also trying to look for the intellectual and academic, you know, um, uh, evidence of whether the history was recorded and he can't find anything. He goes to various bookstores and he can't find anything. Yeah. So um, it is, uh, you know, uh, what's really fascinating is the ways in which you bring a wide sweep of India of the turn of the century. But what is really interesting in the way you sort of show the pretentiousness and the comfort of the middle class, but while the youth are portrayed in, the culture of, you know, the young people, the music, dance, alcohol, and cigarettes. But what's interesting is your projection of the youthful rebellion. You know, it's the young people that want to bring about the change in the past. Talk about it that. It was a big question, in fact, for me as to, you know, how to tell the story. And one thing I knew is that I'm telling, I'm making this film to reach an audience who don't know about this. Uh, and therefore, my central character should also not know about it. Like, it has to be a mystery that she is, I treated it like a mystery, a, 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 like a thriller almost, that it has to, there'll be clues. And she, so she doesn't know because she was a small child and it, it, the memory's gone, right? And she has to get back her memory. She doesn't even remember that she's adopted, that her mother killed herself, all these things. She has to get back that memory. And it's a trauma that suddenly, um, you know, like she goes back to Delhi and something just triggers her memory, right? And, and also, so she's, been, said, she's been given a different reality of what happened by her mother. Right. Yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so it's interesting what you said, because yes, there's the erasure, but also I was trying to reach the audience who don't care about it, who don't, sorry, not who don't care, but the diaspora audience who don't know about it. That is uh, non-Sikhs, you know, Americans, Europeans, and even other Indians who it's not from... It, it's because of the lack of, uh, you know, media covering this as a genocide. It's people, you know, especially people who've grown up by the time I made the film. They're young people. They weren't even born at the time. So how are they to know about it? Nobody's talking about it, you know. So that is why the decision to make the protagonist, as you said, somebody who is like the audience who is uncovering the facts. I, 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 at one point in the beginning, I was like, should I make a documentary or should I make a feature? Because I, I had finished a thesis my thesis was a documentary film called Lifting the Veil. And I was like, if I make a documentary, it'll only be activists and the Sikh community and human rights activists who'll watch this film. I need to make a narrative feature, which is not even outrightly about the genocide. There's very little about the genocide in the film. It's about a girl's coming of age story. 
And through that coming of age story of somebody who's, uh, you know, second generation diasporic young person coming to terms with her life and everything that you uncovered this big truth, you know? So it was to so, sort of cover it up in something else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Take people on a journey who may not want to go on that journey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, because in order to watch a documentary film, you need a certain level of commitment because not many people feel inspired to watch documentary films. So I think this is a very clever strategy. Of, especially at that time, especially yeah. in 2005, like it's yeah. changed since then. Mm -hmm. Because we also subsequently showed a film, a documentary film a couple of years later. I think it was called The Widows of Punjab. And the response was completely different to the response of, you know, your fictional narrativized feature film. Yeah, and also um, you based your film on a novel that you'd written, Amo. No, I wrote the novel after finishing oh, the film. Oh, okay, okay, so when okay. I was editing, when I was editing, Penguin approached me somehow. I don't know how they heard about this and they approached me and they said, we'd love for you to turn your screenplay into a novel. And I was like, that's impossible right now. I'm in the middle of my edit. And they were like, it'll be so cool because no filmmaker has written their own novel and written their own screenplay. And, you know, we'll release it at the same time. So that was, you know, they spurred me on to do that. So I, the only thing I had time to do was as I was driving to my edit room, I would record my voice, uh -huh. the rating, and then I would just at night go home and type it up. So I just had one chance. I just wrote it in one draft. And I really am unhappy because I could have done a much better job if they'd given me more time. But it's, it's what it is. And so it released, the book and the film released on the same day. Sham Benegal released it. Wow, that's fantastic. So what was the reception of the novel? I mean, it was not a huge release, but, you know, it was a decent release. People loved it. I got many people writing to me. I myself was embarrassed by it. Like, I was not proud, proud of it. It's not like a novel, novel, I feel like. Not. <laughs> but it's like the documentation, you know, it's like a, it's a tangible documentation for people who I don't mean, it's have fictional. access to it's, films. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like, it is a story. It is a novel, but I'm just not deeply proud of it. Like, I'm of my film. So, mm -hmm. so um, you also end the film by referring to the 2002 Godhra incident. Why did you do that? Because it had happened by, by, by the time I had started uh, making, you know, not when I initially started writing Amu, but by the time I got the money and I'm going to start, go and start shooting it, Godhra had happened. And that's another genocide, except it's a, by a different political party uh, against a different community. So you had the Congress against the Sikhs and you had the uh, VHP and the BJP against Muslims, you know, and if you had had justice after 84 and clear example made that you cannot get away by killing anybody like gundas, maybe there wouldn't have been that kind of mob violence, who knows, you know, but the state, if you look at the state, the responsibility of the police, the paramilitary, the judges, everybody, like the, this huge cover-up that happened with 84, it lays the ground to have more and more communal pogroms in the country you know, which act as diversions from, you know, problems of the economy and other problems, right? So there was no question, but I had to end with that. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, when I had to apply for censor certificate, Anupam Kher was the head of the censor board at the time. And uh, he told me that, you know, you should remove that. I said, no, I won't be removing that for sure. And they gave me an A certificate. And the A certificate really hurt Amu because... Uh, there's nothing A in it. There's no sex. There's no violence in it. Even the violence of 84 is 
completely not shown. It's just a little girl seeing her father's. We are on the girl's face. We don't see the, the carnage and violence because I don't believe you need to see the violence. You need to feel the violence. So there's no reason for it to be A, except the government said, why should young people know a history that is better buried and forgotten? So that was the exact sentence the censor board said to me. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations for having unraveled <laughs> the history. Now, so Margarita with a straw also is a rare representation of sexuality and sexual desire of uh, a woman or women with disabilities. Um, the central character in your film, Bella, suffers from cerebral palsy. Or now, women with disabilities tend usually to be marginalized or misrepresented in mainstream Indian cinema. They are often shown as objects of pity and dependence or sexual exploitation. Of course, there are exceptions and I'm not going to name all of them, not that there are many like films like Koshish and Fana and Barfi that complicate this, you know, this mainstream narrative. But there are problems with those narratives too. Um, in Margarita, Leila's disabled and queered body challenges this hegemony of the ableist discourse of the mainstream Indian cinema. What inspired you to make this film? My first cousin, Malini, who is like my younger sister, one year younger than me only, I grew up with her. We were brought up in the same way. There was no, I did nothing. If I went swimming, she went swimming. Whatever I did, she did. She went to a normal school. Then they, you know, they did everything for she. she I went to America to study. She went to England to study. She has a double master's. Even though she's acutely disabled, much more so than Lila. And my father's sister, my aunt, founded the very first, uh, they called it Spastic Society at the time. Now it's called ADAPT, Able Disabled All People Together. But the very first school for children with cerebral palsy was founded by her. So I grew up completely with this. Now, when, uh, when I was a teenager, I was very conscious of the fact not to date anybody because then that would be something I could do that she couldn't. I was aware that, you know, I would make all boys that I knew who are my friends, not my boyfriends, but my friends come and go out dancing with Malini. But I could see that they would, they would not be able to date her. I, I, I could see that, that they were just not going to, be going to overcome the problem of the disabled body to date, you know, and it was heartbreaking. And I was like, there's no way I'll also date. And so I did not, I did not till I was, you know, away from her and in America, um, uh, really, like when I was around her in Bombay, I could not do that anyway. But after that, I guess one moves on in life and one forgets that. And so I forgot about that. You know, she was successful. She wrote a book. She's, you know, having her full life. I forgot about that romantic sexual need till I was 40 and she was 39 and we were hanging out in London. She always out drinks me, which is where the title comes from. Because the funny thing is we would always go out and she drinks, not margarita, but much stronger, rum and coke or whiskey, etc. And I would have to take her children's sippy cup and say, please put the whiskey in this. And the waiters would always look at me shocked because there's an infantilizing also of the disabled that happens. There's a complete infantilizing. And it is a children's sippy cup because she needs to hold the plastic cup and have the straw. And I'd say, put the whiskey in this cup and just water for me, thank you, because I have to carry her. And she staggers up. So I can't be drunk. And, you know, this would be common thing. So sort of that's where the title came from. But anyway, we were drinking. She was drinking and I was having my little soda. And I said, Malini, what do you want for your 40th birthday? It's the best birthday ever, you know, till you get to 50, which I now am. And that's better. But 40, I was like, it's the best birthday. 
And she's, sometimes her speech comes out crystal clear when she's angry or passionate. And it's usually very garbled, but it came out. And she said, I just want to have sex. She said like wow. that. You know? in the, we were in, the, in London in a, and everybody looked because she said it really loudly. And, and my, I immediately said, I said, you know what? It's not as good as it's made out to be. That was my instinctive defensive response because I just didn't know what to do. Then I discussed vibrators and we have a scene in the film where they go and buy a vibrator. Maybe not in the international print, but the Indian print actually has a scene where they go to buy a vibrator. And it's a really funny scene because the guy in the shop thinks they want a vibration unit for the cell phone. Anyway. I've seen that, yeah. So um, talked about getting her a vibrator, etc. But it, it, it just hit me hard that the yearning for romantic and sexual union was still there and unfulfilled. And that's what was the spark uh, to write up a story. What a fascinating story that you made, you were able to make. And, and very subversive because um, you are sort of taking on these big issues such as the ways in which mainstream cinema, Indian cinema pathologizes the disabled bodies, for example, you know, Lela's mother, who's deeply compassionate deeply compassionate towards her daughter, but she still sees her sexual expression and the expression of her bisexuality as a source of threat or disgust. Talk about that. So I actually made this parallel and, and Lila calls her mother out as a hypocrite because she says when the whole world said that, you know, I'm disabled and I can't do this and that, and you stood up against the whole world and you said, no, my daughter can do this and that and my daughter can do this and that. And now the whole world is saying this is, a wrong thing, a bad thing. And you're going along with that and saying, yeah, you know, I, you know, I need you to be made. I need you to be, uh, you know, hegemony. I need you to be the, the majority, you know, I need you to be heterosexual. So look what a hypocrite you are. And I made that parallel, but the parallel didn't come from a political place for me in a certain sense. Like I myself am bisexual and I, I think Margarita with a straw is my most personal film. Like it is actually pretty, uh, it, it is, pretty much following my own life. I was in Miranda House. I fell in love at that time with a woman. I lost my own mother around the same time. All these things happened to me, not to Malini. Malini's mother is very much alive and kicking. So I think I wrote from a very personal space for Margarita with a straw. So it was my sister's situation and her condition and her body, but my life sort of. And then at that time, uh, 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 377 was still like it was still illegal to be gay in India, which has now been lifted, but it was still illegal to be gay in India. And um, at that time, I was like, this is an important, I, I chanced on it to write from my own place. But then I was like, this is an important political act. I cannot now back down from this, especially when the producers and the studio Viacom meeting who were funding the whole thing said, oh, so she's disabled and she's gay. No no way, we're not making this film. And they backed out. I lost half the money. And I was like, no way am I backing out. You back out with the money. No way am I backing down now from this that I'm going to make the character straight. So once I made her gay, there's no way I would reverse and make her straight just to get the money. Same thing happened in Amu, by the way. I was offered money if I would make Kaju a boy. That why can't it be a Sikh boy? You know, yes, because heroes, like films with heroes, get funding and films which are women-led don't get money, especially in 2005. Now mm -hmm. that's changed in 2019, you know, but not at that time. So two times I faced the situation of 
getting money and saying, no, I'm not going to take the money on those terms where it's gender and sexuality asking me to compromise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Um, and just, just like you sort of take on this whole pathologizing of the disabled body, uh, you also sort of uh, talk about the ways in which, you know, women with disability or people with disability are seen as inhabiting bodies that can be normalized through medical or superstitious in- interventions. So talk about the ways in which Kanum's mother reacts to her when she learns that she's gay. What does she ask her to do? Or what does she have? She has, yes, she has a complete... So Kanum is Pakistani and her mother stopped talking to her. She cried. She tried to... She t- took her to... A, she wanted her to see a therapist. She wanted her to have medicine, thinking that this is, this is something abnormal and it can be treated. Like, we can cure you, you know. And she beat her and, you know, she went through all those traumas. Mm-hmm. And also she thinks that it's, you know, like she sends her to Hakim or witch doctor or things like that. Yeah. Right. And so it's like the, the story is really very interesting because it's deeply led with all of these questions that you ask through representing, uh, for example, you know, without sort of overtly sentimentalizing the view of disability, you touch on the idea of acceptability of the disabled body is can disability can disability only be accepted by disabled people? Like, for example, you know, Leila's relationship with Dhruv and Kanum. This is a very important thing for me because I, I, I noticed that in my own sister Malini, um, that, you know, I would, like, I would often tell her that, you know, like all your friends you choose are straight, I, I mean, uh, are, are able-bodied. Like, you, you, you sort of, like I felt that there was a self-hatred of the body, not now, when she was young. And this was an, ob- and because I was doing Lila as a young person, I was thinking of Malini when we were young. And I noticed that, that yearning, that there was a rejection of her own body. There's a self-hatred there that therefore you reject Dhruv. As soon as, you know, you, you get somebody who's not in a wheelchair, like the cute guy, you know, uh, who's going to, you know, you, you think like, oh, maybe I have a chance with him. You, you were kissing through one minute, you immediately drop him. So she, I made her a great character. Firstly, I made her a great character because I can't bear that the disabled have to be this pure, amazing, oh, beautiful, put on a pedestal. Like that's just nonsense. So there was no way. So I had to make the character great, just like any of us are. Everybody is great. That was one thing. But I also made the person unconscious. Like she's not conscious politically of physicality, of disability. She's not yet She's not queer conscious. She's not conscious about disability rights yet. Malini today is a huge activist on disability and uh, women's bodies and the, you know, how the body perfect and women. But at that time she wasn't when she was young, you know? And so I felt like Lila is naive. Like Lila's just, she just wants what she wants, but she's hurting people because she doesn't have the consciousness that w- of what she's doing. And so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a mirror to her face uh, and, and literally it becomes a mirror in the end when she learns to love and accept herself. But when Kanum just throws back at her that, you know, you, know, you, you, you can't just mess around with people. Like, you know, you know, what are you doing? And in a certain way also, I feel like, but the thing is that I also am not trying to criminalize her because I think as a teenager, you could, you could fall in love with somebody else, number one. Okay, you could be unfaithful and that's not the biggest crime in the world, number one. But number two, when she says with honesty, it is because he could see me. It was like when, and people have asked me that, how could I put such a cruel line? Like she's telling, you know, her, her girlfriend who can't see her, 
that I chose him because he was blind. Was blind, yes. yeah. Because she needed that affirmation that somebody would accept her body, and she was not empowered enough to see that Kanum accepts her body and Kanum can see her with her hands and feel her. And just because she's blind, it doesn't make her a lesser person to accept her because she still didn't have that consciousness. So she needed the able-bodied, perfect male figure to accept and empower her and affirm her sexuality by by being desired that she needed because you you fall into this right you you're just influenced by the propaganda and society so desire perfect desires from a good looking man right and that's who happens thing. in this case who happens to be white and blonde too white good looking man right the hottie this is the idealized thing right you see it in advertisements everything and you get influenced by that and so, and then it broke her heart. Later, and she realized, she immediately realized that, no, 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 I love Kanum and I can't do this. And she feels guilty and terrible. And when her mother dies, she has the ability to be honest. She just needs to be honest because they kept the secret of the cancer from her. And she was like, I, 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 I can't have secrets anymore. And she bursts out and says, I can't have secrets anymore. And that's why she has to tell her. Because one thing would have been like, you, you, you could have just not told her. You could have just, you know, you had this little thing and, but she just needed to come clean. Mm-hmm. She needed to come clean to be able to move on and fully just embrace herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and finally, another question on uh, Margarita where, you know, you turn the question of what is normal, what is not normal, who determines what's normal. So for example, you know, you highlight the practical difficulties faced by people with disabilities who feel neglected in their day-to-day activities or leisure activities. So talk about the central character's experiences, you know, for example, in the elevator or using instruments of cooking and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, um, you'll remember the film more clearly than I do. Probably you've seen it. Like I, it's, I totally forgot about her cooking. <laughs> I forgot <laughs> about that. You know, but it was so empowering that she is lived. So for her to live in India, like people have asked me also, like, why did I have her go abroad? And the reason I had her go abroad is because tragically in India, we still don't have for the extremely physically challenged, uh, you know, like cerebral palsy, et cetera. They, you do not have um, physical spaces that support them, you know, whereas it, it, she was in, in America where the, the whole cooking, the, the range is, is, is designed for the disabled to be able to use it. You, you have the electrical powered wheelchair, you have access on pavements. I see Malini's life, she just goes everywhere herself in London. She goes to the supermarket and shops, she gets on a bus, she's acutely disabled, but she, she has no problem doing that. Now that she can't do in India, so she feels imprisoned in India. So, uh, so but that's, so, so yes, the cooking was something she could do uh, in, in, in India. You know, there's no elevator. Like if the elevator is not working, you know, you, maybe you can't get to the, to the loo in time. This happened in St. Davis College in Bombay where Malini used to have to hold her bladder because the bathroom was not accessible. And so it, we have this powerful scene in Margarita with the store where she's carried up the stairs because the elevator is not working at that point, you know. But I think normal abnormal was something very important that I wanted to bring out. And that's why that's also to do with the hypocrisy of her mother, because she said when, you know, you're saying I'm normal as a, as a disabled person, but I'm abnormal as a, as a gay person. So therefore, in two ways, I'm bringing out who is normal, 
Mm-hmm. Like who's normal? What's who decides who's normal? Like what is normal? You know, so um, just because somebody's body is not the same as ours, like why are we normal and they not? Right? What's normal? Mm-hmm. You, everybody has something that's challenging for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's just not labeled in mm-hmm. the same way as somebody who's gay or somebody who's disabled. Mm-hmm. They are looked at as abnormal. But we all have abnormalities. Absolutely. And, and so, you, so you carry on this conversation that you're having through your cinema um, about uh, uh, you know, people sort of coming to terms with uh, their identities. So I'm now moving on to Chittagong, which is set against the backdrop of this you know, uh, little known story of the 1930s. But you know, but I didn't direct that film. I had nothing to do with that. Right. I know, I know. But, but I think what's also fascinating is that, you know, you feel drawn towards these films, you know, this coming of age. I did co-write it. I did Yeah, co-write. you know, it's like, it's another coming of age drama where you chart the slow inception of the revolutionary zeal among the youth, the journey you know, that this young man has, this young boy has from doubt to guilt and anguish to violent revelation. And I'm just curious to know how was your experience working on a historical narrative, even though you claim that you didn't make, didn't make the film, but you helped write the, the script. No, and the idea was initially mine before uh, Bedo got involved to direct it. I, it, it was my, I wanted to do this uh, as my next film and, and uh, research it and wrote it. And then he joined in and wrote it with me. And I was, I, I feel, as I said, this is why Political Science Columbia put me off because I'm drawn to these kinds of revolutions we've had in our country and they're little known. Mm-hmm. And so this is such an inspiring movement. And it, I feel like today we need to have these kinds of inspiring movements that there it was a colonial state, but today we have a state which is as oppressive, if not more than the colonial state. And we need to have young people realize that and rise up and not feel it's impossible to rise up. So this was what drove me to come up with it, you know, to, to write it. And I wanted to do it from the person, from the youngest person who was involved because I actually met him on his deathbed. And I am the one who shot him on his deathbed, which Bedu has used at the end of the film. Junku, I, I shot him uh, on my little camera and uh, I you know, actually told him on his deathbed that I want to tell your story because just as a, a 14 year old, you know, being so political and being so, you know, inspiring was was very moving for me and mm-hmm. and that's why i wanted to do i mm-hmm. wanted him to be the protagonist and not master that not should Sen be the protagonist yeah uh, and i think what's also very interesting about this film is you have a most powerful cast in the film the best talent that you have in hindi cinema today you know people like manoj bajpai and nabazuddin siddiqui rajkumar rao and now the up-and-coming vijay verma and which takes me all, down. By the way, we, we launched Rajkumar Rao, Vijay Varman. This was, this was all, of, all of them was their first film. Nawaz had done a film but was completely not known. And I called Anurag Kashyap when we finished Chittagong. And I said, I have this bunch of just brilliant, brilliant actors. And you're you know, auditioning for your film, Gangs of Wasipur. May I please send them over? And oh, he said, yep. And then they all got cast by him in Gangs of Wasipur. <laughs> I see, I see. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and now, so it takes me uh, to your latest film, The Sky is Pink, uh, you know, which is a film about a girl born with rare immune, immune deficiency order, disorder, 
And it's based on a love story of a couple spanning, you know, 25 years, a story which is told through the eyes of this teenage, their teenage daughter who was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis. So, um, and now you work with uh, really very well-established actors and very popular actors and stars such as Priyanka Chopra. Um, uh, and I would wanted to know what your experience is, you know, working with such experienced filmmakers. It was amazing, actually, but I was very intimidated in the beginning because I had a terrific time directing people like Konkuna Sen Sharma and Kalki. So, you know, and I'm very hands-on and very, uh, you know, into working with my actors. And I was worried that these are stars and, you know, how is the experience going to be? Um, but it was fantastic. Um, Farhan, I was the most intimidated by Farhan Akhtar because he's also a director. And not only is he director, he's directed Priyanka Chopra. So I was like, oh my God, he's going to be watching me and I, I'm going to just be falling short of what he thinks of a director. I was very nervous. At the very first meeting, Farhan said, the script is absolutely brilliant. And so was Margarita with the straw that I just recently watched. He had only just recently watched it. You know, even though I made it in 2015, 2018, he just watched it. And he said that I am terrified to do this film. I am terrified and intimidated. And I just place myself in your hands. And do you really think I can do it? And that was so disarming and sweet and just lovely. And thereafter, it was, he was just pure actor in my hands. Like just, there was never, never a second where I felt he's a director watching me or saying anything, like whatever I wanted. And we had a beautiful relationship. So that was with Farhan. With Priyanka, I, I felt and I realized, and my producer also told me that, now Priyanka hadn't seen my work and I was really surprised that she didn't even want to. I was like, how can she trust me to direct her when she hasn't even seen my work? And, was surprised but she she found the script brilliant she had read a thousand scripts and she, this was what spoke to her and therefore she even wanted to produce it and not just act in it and Sid told me that the thing with Priyanka is that if she feels you're a weak director she's going to walk all over you because she in her life has had sometimes weak directors where then she feels like she needs to direct herself so so be yourself and don't hold back like he said this to me before the very first meeting that I was going to have with her and um, I took that to heart and I was passionately, militantly myself. And I even told her my rules, which is that, you know, you cannot come to the monitor and, and ask to see any of your takes. You cannot see anything of the film till it's over because then you will start watching yourself and judging yourself. And this is an absolute no-no. An actor has to trust the director. The entire thing is based on trust. And if they watch themselves, then they're going to start directing themselves. So... Actually, people like Priyanka, Salman Khan, and all these, like they all watch their own selves. They watch their takes. They ask to rewind, say, show me. But she abided by my rules. She, never, she, she completely abided by them. Funny thing is the first day of workshop, her manager calls me and says, you know, she's not used to the kind of intense workshops you do. So I would say like, spice it up a bit, break it up, like, you know, do three hours of workshop and then do costume. And in my head, I was just like, oh my God, like this is awful because I'm used to somebody like Kalki who's working eight, 10 hours in a day, 30 days in a stretch with me. So I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll see what I can do. I go in for the first day of workshop at 11 in the morning, stagger out at 10 at night, exhausted because we just went on and on and on. And she just had all of this energy and curiosity and 
asking so many questions and discussing all the interpretations scene by scene and it was just perfection like the, the what you want as a director and I staggered out and my phone had been off and I turned it on and there were all these missed calls from my producer Sid as well as from the manager and all saying are you okay what happened what's going on you've been so it was wonderful actually they both stars became actors in my hands and which is what you see on the screen uh, it's a wonderful collaboration because if you don't have that collaboration between actors and directors then you can't get these kinds of performances by the way is that they both said to me both actors how healing this film was for them mm-hmm. and it was for the protagonist see because by the time i started making it i was in a very happy place with death mm-hmm. and um the protagonists themselves met me when they were only 9 months into their healing their daughter had only died 9 months prior priyanka hadn't really dealt with her her um father's death farhan had some other things going on zaira had some other things rohit had lost his father so it was very healing for everybody my positive energy around death and in general my positive energy which is wonderful so it's, it's been a very meaningful film because it's been beyond just a film and it's beyond just a film for many people the way they're responding to me life changing for them because people don't know to talk about death or how to deal with death mm-hmm. and it's every everybody faces death every single mm-hmm. person is going to face a loved one's death and their own death other people will face but their loved one's death every person faces but we don't not just indians western nobody talks about it and so the amazing like email, even just now at the festival like people just coming and hugging like even margarita made people cry or me have other awareness but here it's deeply personal people are just like i lost my grandmother and then i didn't know what to do and then now there are so many people telling me how they're now being able to heal from mm-hmm. watching mm-hmm. and my actors also healing while doing the film mm-hmm. love yeah, yeah yeah because this is so powerful it's yeah. very um uh it's very uh, i mean it sort of gives you an insight in me an insight into you know how the audience is reacting to your film you know what does it mean for people to email publicly and every single day like just now i got delayed because i just checked the junk mail because it goes in junk cuz i have hot mail just amazing pieces from ordinary ordinary young people writing about death and the every single thing is about death that's what they write about that what they feel now about death and thank you for that thank you deeply a huge thank you you've changed our lives wow it's just it's so moving so moving get that beautiful so once again one of the central themes in the film is something that i see running across all of your films and that is a very powerful theme of this hybridity of identities you know people being born in one country traveling across borders uh going and living in the in another country another culture so what do you do to represent this hybridity of identity what do i do mm-hmm. what does that mean what do i do how do you how do you uh how do you sort of show this hybridity of identity uh, because this is I, an intangible thing right i guess it's because i've just lived it i've lived it myself right i grew up in india and then i came and lived in america 30 years and then i came back to india and it's very fluid for me and i intensely understand the immigrant experience you know i've raised both my children were born and grown up in america uh, i i didn't have money when i first lived in america 
uh, and then then I then I had money. So you know, I've been through all the steps and stages, uh, I, and also I know how it feels when you're that generation who also are very linked with the home country and yearn for it, but your kids are not. Like I have the entire experience, and then I've done a lot of work with other immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it is just drawing from my own experience, which is honest. Mm-hmm. Like just. And that's what comes through. I, 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 I can't even, I don't think I've done anything other than just knowing my own experience right from that place. Mm-hmm. So for example, Kaju, when she arrives in Delhi, and of course Kabir makes fun of her because he completely misunderstands you know, her fascination for India when he sees her using the camera. She's looking at India through this, you know, the lens of the camera and uh, her very very uh, Americanized accent, which is like such a delight to, it, is, is it her own voice? Does she go through oh, a training? Yeah. Oh yes, okay. she came to yeah. the training. Yeah. I gave yeah. her the tapes which people use in America when they need to have an American accent. Uh-huh. So there are tapes that exist that teach you to have an American accent when immigrants come. So she would just listen to them all the time. And that's what, how she did it. She did a brilliant job. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, she very much reminded me of the voice of uh, the central character in Mississippi Masala. Is it Radha? I forget her name. You know, and the way she's talking to her mother who's, you know, represented by Sharmila Tagore. She just sounded so much like her. Yeah. Um, okay. So a last few uh, quick questions. So you were saying, I, I interrupted you. You were saying that when Kaju comes and does that and Kabir makes fun of her, you were yeah, no, no. I was just only saying that uh, she she represents um, she inhabits that on the surface a typical Western Americanized Desi or like you know uh, diasporic identity that does the tourist thing, has the foreign gaze and everything. So, um, which of course is misunderstood. You know, she's doing it for a, for an entirely different reason. Yeah. So that was no, that was very important for me because I feel um, I myself when I first went like there's this attitude there's a little bit of attitude even I had an attitude about the ABCDs right till I actually gave birth to them myself I mean I had that attitude and and, and then like I I needed to get past my own attitude and be able to l- be loving towards that that like here they you know and usually it happens to them when they're eighteen nineteen twenty that they want to touch based with their parents' roots and come and discover India. And so first, I, I, I would be annoyed as a young person, but later when I'm writing the film, I've got past that annoyance. And that's why I put it in Kabir's character because I had that same attitude myself. And then I have my protagonist put him in his place, you know, and she, she sort of uses Spanish to curse him, knowing <laughs> that he won't understand. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's lovely uh, what you say because I see that in my son as well. And I used to be annoyed, and now I'm not annoyed. In fact, I feel very sorry for people who think about you know the young Indians coming back home and discovering their roots and being completely misplaced about their you know intentions about what they're doing, what why you know why they're doing what they're doing. Okay, so um, yeah, so um, so once again, going back to the central thematics of your films, you know, they focus on the relationship between the mother and the daughter. Uh, the you know focus on the identity of the body you know the colonized body the disabled body the orphanized body the sick body and I wanted to sort of uh, conclude by asking you these questions about you know like your you know overarching you know inspirations for why you feel again and again drawn to these kind of thematics in your films 
and these kind of identities in your films? I think all these three films, and I, I would say in a certain sense that it's a trilogy that I've made about the mother-daughter relationship, all placed in Delhi, actually. Um, uh, interestingly, all three of them are in Delhi. Um, and death. And I've dealt with death in three different ways in the, in the three films. So death has been a huge theme for me. And I think it's because for all three films, I've really drawn from my personal life. So they're just, the three films are just different variations of my own personal life in, in Amu. And, and again, so, you know, Delhi University being a key part of my own consciousness, awareness, raising, then coming to live abroad as an immigrant, going back to India. So all that's used in the, in the films. And then the genocide, then the mother's death, like a, a person with cerebral palsy, bisexuality, like a child's death. All these are from my own direct life, you know, and I've really written from that personal space for all three films. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And at the end, I think what is really striking about your film um, is your desire to seek the truth. You know, Kanum asked Leila, did you really have to tell me the truth? Kaju wants to know the truth of her past. Talk about that. I think whether it's in social justice, where there's a lot of cover-ups of political things that happen, or in personal relationships where we are constrained uh, by social expectations and rules where marriage or anything is concerned of what you can do, what you can't do. You know, so if, you're, if you discover your sexuality and you're bisexual and it's just a terrible fear that can you now say, can you not say, you know, and, and it just, when you, when you can't have honesty in your own life and your own self and this little life that we have, it's just, it's ter it tears you apart. And to be able to just be honest when in my own life, when I could just be honest with my family or anybody in whatever I was doing with my own sexuality or politically in both those things was when I felt the most liberated and I can breathe. I can just be myself. I can exist. So I think truth and in a larger political level, I feel very strongly about truth, right? The truth commissions, like about cover-ups that happen all over the world and the state covers up the most and the state carries out the biggest atrocities and covers up and makes it seem as if it's something else to divert. So truth at a personal level, as well as at a larger political level is very important for me. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. It has been such a pleasure talking to you, Shanali. I've known you for such a long time and... And I have never had the opportunity before now to, to talk about your entire oeuvre. And thank you so much for talking with me today. I know you've been very busy, um, you know, being part of the festival. Thank you. Thank you. Alka, this was the, the best interview and the best analysis anybody has done of, of, of my work. You know, I don't feel it's as grand to say it's an oeuvre or anything, but just my three films, my three simple films, like the way you've, the things you said and you just caught them, like they're just an eye-opener to me myself, actually. Like what you said about truth right now, and I hadn't even thought about that. So thank you very much for an illuminating, wonderful interview. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. And um, I wish you all the very best and, um, uh, in your future endeavors. And may the world see more of Shanali Bose's absolutely fantastic feminist diasporic cinema that centers around truth and identity. Thank you. Take care.